Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tennis team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tennis offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting CapitalAllocatorsPodcast.com. My friend Brian Portnoy recently put together a Zoom call where he and Jonathan Novi interviewed Annie Duke about decision-making in the crisis. Brian was a longtime fund investor and has authored two books in the field of behavioral finance. He and I discussed his second book, The Geometry of Wealth, on episode 57 that follows on the feed. He's currently a financial wellness consultant for advisors, corporations, and industry associations. Jonathan is a financial advisor at Ritholtz Wealth Management, a prominent and fast-growing RIA. And Annie is a regular on the show. She's a poker legend, decision-making theorist, and best-selling author. And she's releasing a new book later this year entitled How to Decide, but that's subject matter for another show down the road. 
What follows is the segment of their call pertaining to the crisis. They discuss the difference between complicated and complex decisions, the trade-off between time and certainty when making decisions, the process of preparing clients to make good investment decisions today, and decision-making education for children. Please enjoy Brian and Jonathan's conversation with Annie Duke. So we have a lot of people on the call, a lot of great friends and friends of friends, and I appreciate everyone diving in here. For those of you who don't know me, I am Brian Portnoy. I'm the author of The Geometry of Wealth and a general behavioral finance nerd. I've gotten to know Annie over the last few years, and we're going to have a conversation today over the next hour or so about decision-making during uncertain times. And co-hosting with me is my good friend, Jonathan Novi, who's a senior financial advisor at Ritholtz Wealth. Jonathan, you want to say hi? Hi, everybody. Thanks very much for coming, Annie. Thank you very much for taking the time. Just by way of quick introduction, she has definitely become somebody who needs no introduction, but I'll provide a, a very brief one anyway. Annie Duke is an uh, expert and author in the field of decision-making, her most recent book, which was a big-time bestseller. It's called Thinking in Bets with the subtitle, Making Smarter Decisions When You Don't Have All the Facts. So uh, I think that touches on what we want to talk about today. Also, as many of you know, she was formerly a very successful poker player, one of the most successful of all time. Annie was awarded a National Science Foundation Fellowship to study cognitive psychology at Penn. And she is the co-founder of the Alliance for Decision Education, which is a super cool organization that teaches children about how to make better decisions. And I feel very lucky to be on the advisory board of that organization. And she has a new book coming out later this year. Is that available for pre-order? Yeah, it's How to Decide, Simple Tools for Making Better Choices. And that's, that is indeed available for pre-order now. So... Awesome. Publishers like pre-orders, hint, hint. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there you go. I just want to start with the subtitle to your first book, which I already mentioned, but I'll say again, which is making smarter decisions when you don't have all the facts. Let's just dive into the deep end of the pool with what we're dealing right now on multiple levels in terms of uncertainty. One thing I know that you'd like to distinguish is between situations that are complicated versus those that are complex, and why making decisions in those two scenarios are actually quite different from each other. Let me hand it off to you to go where you want to go. And Sure, thanks. So first of all, just gratitude. I'm just really appreciative of everybody coming on to talk tonight. So one of the things I've been thinking about recently is really what the difference is when you're trying to make decisions where there's lots and lots of uncertainty. So the way I think about the difference between complicated and complex would, would actually be the difference between chess and poker. So a complicated decision is one that's hard. It's got a lot of levels. It's very deep, but there is a solution. So whatever uh, ground truth is, is totally discoverable and it's solvable. So one of the ways that you could think about that is that if I show you a position mid-game in chess, you can figure out how you got there. So it's complicated, it's hard to do, but the solution is knowable. So in that particular case, what you can think about is given enough data, you could actually get to certainty. Whereas complex decisions, when you're dealing with complexity, it's a little bit different, which is the solution really kind of isn't knowable. You can, depending on how much information you have, 
you can certainly model it out and try to capture as much of the world as you possibly can, but you can't really get to 100%. And one of the things that I think that we have problems with as decision makers is that we think things are complicated when they're actually complex. We treat things as solvable and knowable when they're actually not. And we aren't very accepting of the idea that there's a lot of uncertainty in almost every decision that we make and that the way that things are gonna turn out, it's just hard. And a lot of it is subjective and how you're modeling it. And two people could look at the exact same data and actually come to very different conclusions about what that means about the world, because it depends on your model. Whereas that's really kind of not true of chess. There's actually an answer. And that what we're really trying to do as decision makers is try to get to make the way that we're viewing the world as close as possible to if we were omniscient and we knew what ground truth was, we try to get those as close together as possible. So when it comes to what's been happening with coronavirus, obviously there's a tremendous amount of uncertainty. And at least in regards to this particular moment in time, I think that it's really kind of in your face that this isn't just complicated, that there's something a lot more going on and we're dealing with something that's very complex very unpredictable. There's a tremendous amount of uncertainty. And we're much more aware both of what we don't know, and that there's a whole lot of stuff that we don't even know we don't know. So it's just kind of in your face right now. And what I think that we need to recognize is that while that's very in your face for what's happening with COVID-19, that really, most of the decisions we're making look a lot more like this than we care to think. And that the more that we can kind of get into the space of recognizing that we're trying to shove certainty into situations where it kind of doesn't belong, I think the better off that we would be as decision makers. One thing I want to dive into is sort of everyone's information diet right now, because basically from the second we wake up to the second we go to bed, the folks on this call are just consuming an enormous amount of information and are also leaders in their businesses and communities in terms of then transmitting that information. And I think even under normal complexity, we always want more information. Maybe if you could dive into where we might cross the line where there's so much information that it's too much. There's two byproducts that come from just our natural human tendency to believe that things are solvable. The first is overconfidence and illusion of control, believing that we have the answer believing that our model of the world is actually the truth. And I think that a situation like this with coronavirus really shows you that your model of the world isn't necessarily the truth. We tend to believe that we have better answers that we do, that we're much too sure that we got it, and that we know exactly how things are going to turn out. This is kind of poking holes in that. But the other thing that I think is really interesting that kind of falls out of this issue is that particularly in a world that's very data-rich, you have a trade-off between certainty and time. If you take the time to collect more data and get more information, that you should be able to start to move toward more certainty. But that in order to do that, you must spend time to do that. So we have this trade-off, right? Which is the more valuable resource? Would we rather be certain and be more sure of the decision that we're going to make, or would we rather be saving time? And I think that in general, particularly because we do think that things are more solvable than they are, And as that collides with the current world that we have lived in, which is very data rich, we tend to fall on the side that the certainty is the more valuable resource. And so we spend a lot of time trying to collect data 
because we think that we can actually get to a pretty certain answer about things. And we have this illusion, well, I don't want to decide when I'm kind of 60% sure, because if I just take more time and I get a whole bunch of more information and I collect more data, that somehow I'm going to get to be 90% sure. And first of all, that's an illusion because it's very rare that you're going to get to that much certainty and there's diminishing returns as you collect more data. And very often what happens is once you get to kind of a tipping point, it's not so much the quality of your decision is going to get better, but it's that the confidence in your decision will get greater. And that's actually a place that you don't want to be. So you can think about that, right? Like it's like a no better decision, but you're really, really sure that it's a great decision. So we tend to fall on that side. But I think that what we miss there is thinking about what's the value of time. And I think that this is where coronavirus actually gives us a really, really good, sadly, very in-your-face demonstration of why it is that we should be thinking more about the value of the time. So in the case of something like coronavirus, where it progresses exponentially, and by the way, at a time delay, right? So cases that were infected seven days ago, maybe we find out just today, or 11 days ago, maybe we find out just today. So there's kind of two problems with it. What we know is that we should be favoring time over certainty. So we should be trying to act and putting like a lot of hedges in place and doing things that are a little bit more extreme when we don't have a lot of data. Because the one thing that we do know is that the longer you wait, the magnitude of the downside gets greater and the probability of realizing those downside outcomes also goes up. This is like super in your face that as you're thinking about managing that time certainty trade-off, that you should be falling on the side of saving time and acting when you're very, very uncertain, even if the measures are pretty extreme. Just to interrupt, I mean, it's easy to say, well, COVID-19 seems like a disaster and we should have done certain things earlier and therefore we'd rather buy more time when you think more programmatically about the types of decisions where you want to be on one side of that trade-off versus the other versus on yeah. sort of an ad hoc basis? There's kind of three things that you can think about. The first is, does the option expire? So here's like a simple example. I live in the South. I'm trying to decide whether to move to the Northeast for a job. There's a lot of uncertainty about whether I can deal with, say, a New England winter. So I've got lots and lots of uncertainty around that. Do I actually want to go? How could I gain some certainty about whether I could deal with a New England winter? I guess I could move to New England during a winter and go check it out. And then that would give me certainty around how I felt about it. But the problem is that the job option would have expired by that time. So that's the first thing you can think about, right? Is like just figure out is the opportunity going to go away? Because if the opportunity goes away, you should be willing to decide when you're much less certain if it's going to go away because you just like to grab the opportunity. And obviously, that depends a little bit on what the downside to going fast is. And you sort of need to think about the balance between downside and upside to just going ahead and doing it. That's one of the first things that you can think about. The second thing is what we've been talking about, which is if the magnitude or the probability of the downside starts to increase as time passes, you would favor time over certainty for sure. And then the next thing that you might think about is, is this something where I really care what the result is? So there's all sorts of things that we can gain lots and lots of certainty about if we wanted to take the time to do it, but the outcome doesn't really matter to us very much. A super simple example of that would be like, I'm in a restaurant and I'm trying to decide between the chicken or the fish, right? So I could do lots of research on that and I could spend a lot of time like quizzing the wait staff or 
going back to the kitchen, I suppose, and finding out what the chicken and fish looks like or something. Right, right, I don't right, know. Right. But the thing is that in a year, that literally isn't going to have ticked my happiness up or down at all. And there's lots and lots of things that we decide about where if we were to think ahead and say, is this going to have an impact on my long-term sort of what my sheet is, right? So use happiness as a peg for wealth or health or happiness or whatever mm-hmm. it might be. The answer is no. But again, because the data is available to us, we'll actually spend the time trying to gather data and we'll use that valuable resource because we feel like we could actually solve the problem. But it's a problem that doesn't need solving because it doesn't really matter to you very much. So there's more stuff like this, but there's lots of things that help us sort of decide what's the value of the time, what's the value of accuracy. Most of it has to do with getting ahead and thinking ahead to what the possible outcomes are and thinking backwards from there. Suffice it to say that what we do know is that we're not very good at thinking probabilistically, and we're particularly not good at thinking exponentially. And it's really interesting, like when I work with people and I'm trying to get them to think about the time accuracy trade-off, what it requires is that you go to the end and you say, let me think about what the possible outcomes are, and then let me sort of imagine how I got here. You can imagine in the case of coronavirus, 20,000 people died, 200,000 people died, 2 million people died. How did we get here? pretty much every one of them has to do with how you manage time. So we can find that time is very valuable in there if we can get to the end result and work backwards from that. But what that requires is a willingness to say there's all sorts of different ways that it could turn out. And what I find is that when I work with people, it's very hard for them to accept that. And what they really want you to tell them is how it's going to turn out. It's just kind of a tough thing for people to get to. I think the other problem that people have in terms of this sort of reliance on certainty is that I think that people tend to think like, if I could just get enough data, then I would know exactly how it was going to turn out. And I wouldn't have to think probabilistically in the first place, except that for many things, particularly when we're dealing with complex systems as decision makers, as human beings interacting with the world, the data we actually need is to find out how the world responds to us. So it actually behooves you to actually make lots of decisions and do lots of actions in order to get the world to give you the data back so that you actually can find out how the world would respond if you did certain things. A really simple example is that I can sit there and I can think forever and I can model it out and I can get lots and lots of data about whether I'm going to increase customer satisfaction by having cookies in a store or by doing some kind of online sweepstakes giveaway. And I can spend a lot of time trying to figure that out. But the best thing to do is to take a store and put some cookies in it. And at that time, you can say, well, how much do you think that will increase sales? And my answer should rightly be, I don't know. I should just try it. Because otherwise, I'm kind of just wasting my time trying to somehow figure out that I can predict the behavior of people in that particular way, in this particular store. And I think that the shame of it all, the big shame of it all is that there's just this true thing about hedges, which is the earlier you get to them, which necessarily means when you're the most uncertain, that's when they are the cheapest to put Mm -hmm. on. So when it comes to coronavirus, you can see this interaction really clearly in terms of the time savings, that part of what comes with saving time is actually getting the cheaper hedges in place because you are much more uncertain. So the simple example before I get to coronavirus would be If I build a brand new house and the weather outside is beautiful and the weather in my state is beautiful and I buy fire insurance, it's going to be very inexpensive. But I'm also at that time 
very, very uncertain whether my house will ever burn down. In fact, I'm super duper hoping that my house never burns down. So right. that's kind of an interesting thing about hedges. They cost something, they'll mitigate the downside if it realizes, but you're really, really hoping that you never use it. Okay, so I buy the fire insurance. I'm super duper hoping I never have to use it. And it's very uncertain whether my house is gonna burn down. If there's a fire raging at my door and embers are being thrown on my roof, now I've got lots and lots of certainty that my house is probably gonna burn down. But if I go and try to buy the hedge now, if I go and try to buy the fire insurance, it's gonna be really prohibitively expensive. And this actually way of thinking about the world and thinking about hedges as it relates to uncertainty actually applies in all sorts of situations. And one of the places it applies really well is actually for COVID-19. Mm -hmm. So we can think about if we're in January and we can see that something's happening in China, we're not exactly sure what, particularly because China's not reporting it well, but we sort of are like, okay, this may be looking bad. And you're seeing it's maybe jumping, maybe there's one case in Italy and one case here and one case there. At that time in January, it's very uncertain what the course is gonna be here. Is it gonna get here? Is there gonna be community transfer? There's just all sorts of like, the range of outcomes is super, super, super wide at this point. So we're really, really uncertain. But that's the time that you can put on a really, really inexpensive hedge, which is spend all of January and February producing tests. Just like ramp up your test kits and ramp up the capacity to process those tests. And if you look at that compared to GDP or the national debt and what that's gonna cost us, it's like almost free and you may never use them. You may never ever use the test. Wouldn't we be so lucky? But that's when you can get the cheap hedge on that will actually mitigate the worst things happening here. But you have to be thinking in that kind of framework in order to see that path. We're dealing with investment committees. We're dealing with clients that have great concerns right now about what's happening to their portfolio. And based on their predispositions, they want to buy the dip. Hey, market's way down. I'm going to be a value investor. But others are scared and they want to sell everything. So we're dealing with a range of different types of personalities. Some are too brave. Some are too fearful. Any quick tips on how the financial advisors and others on this call might engage those clients on those sorts of conversations? Yeah, so this is a place where base rates are really helpful. I just think showing people, you know, and obviously this depends on the age of the client, right? But can I just make an assumption here that the client has time? Just because I don't really want to talk about somebody who's 70 who actually needs the dough this second. Yeah, somebody in their late 30s to early 50s who's right, got at so least 10 years to go before they want to slow down and okay. live off cash flow from their portfolio. I think this is a place where base rates can really help. And using this idea of what is your identity to your advantage. So using a lot of tribal language mm -hmm. can also really help. We're people who are in a tribe where part of our identity is open-mindedness. And part of our identity is like sort of like adjusting our beliefs and strong convictions loosely held and all of that stuff. And mm -hmm. so what that's helped us to do is to behave more rationally in the face of uncertainty because that's part of our identity. So how can you do that with your clients? Well, the first thing is, just to let them in on the secret, to say, okay, so here's the problem. People really get driven by biases, particularly when times are rough and there's a lot of uncertainty. So first of all, let's just kind of look at the base rates and the way the market normally goes. And then let me show you an example scenario of someone in 2008 
who cashed out, panicked, and sold all their stocks, and somebody who didn't. And you can kind of show them who participated in the recovery, who didn't, Mm -hmm. and say, so here's the thing. You're going to hear a lot of people panicking. You're going to hear lots and lots of people saying, like, you have to sell or, or saying, like, buy the dip or saying all of these things. And I'm telling you right now that that's actually the road to having things go poorly. You could actually do a pre-mortem with them and imagine, like, okay, it's a year from now and the market is back to 29 and you didn't get any of it. How did that happen? So you can actually work that kind of problem with them. Or it's a year from now and the market is 29 and you really did well. Like, how did that happen? And you can kind of walk through that with them and then actually specifically use identity language and say, you're going to hear other people who aren't in on it, who don't understand this kind of stuff. And you're going to hear all these things that they're saying, because what you want to do is not get them to bandwagon with the people who are behaving irrationally. And that's what they're naturally going to do, particularly if it's their buddies. And instead, you want them to hear those kinds of words and think, I'm different than that. This is what makes me special, is that I resist these urges, and I don't actually fall for this stuff. So get them in your tribe. And in order to get them in your tribe, you need to be transparent with them. You have to allow them in on the sort of inside view, outside view, and you're going to hear all of this stuff. And this is how we actually think about it. And I can show you the base rates. And this is what people who did poorly in 2008 did. And this is what people who did well. What do you think that these people in 2008 were doing? Let's think about what they were doing who did poorly. And let's think about what these ones were doing who did well. And let's think about what all those people were saying to their friends. And you're not going to fall for it. The other thing that I would say is this. One of the problems, if we go way back to the beginning of the conversation about thinking that things are solvable, that somehow we know if we have enough data as we sort of overvalue our models of the world and our opinions is that we look at something like the market and we don't really understand how complex that system is. If you think about an outside observer, like a retail investor, and you say, they're looking at it and they're like, well, there's stocks and bonds and people buy them and they sell them and they go up and down. And I can sort of look at the world and say, There's all sorts of things that are kind of bad about the world. So obviously it's going to go down, but then this good news is going to happen and it's going to go up and they somehow think that they've solved it. I think a good example of why that's silly is that on the day that it was announced that like 3 million people had filed for unemployment, the market shot up, right? Which would go against almost everybody's model, but it's very easy for people to discard that. What I think it's really important to tell the people who are thinking about, I'm going to buy the dip, who are thinking that somehow they can figure this out and connect what's happening in the world to what's going to happen in the market, is to say, you have like a job and a life and like children and you're trying to homeschool them and you're figuring out groceries and you're having to do laundry and you have a life and you're looking at the news and maybe you're watching like CNBC. There are people who are so smart and they spend their whole day. It's all they do is modeling this stuff. They live and breathe it. And they're all trading in this market. So for somehow for you to believe that you could be smarter than what the market is saying, that you could assume that it's not efficient in some way, and it's not maybe not efficient every single hour, every single day, but like over time, the market's going to be efficient. And for you to think that you could pick out the very little places where it's inefficient against the people who are literally spending their lives doing it, 
is a folly that other people get trapped in. That is what other people do. But you realize that the market, particularly in times like this, where it's really trading a lot, you're probably not going to be able to outguess it given the information that you have. And when you can realize that, and then you can hear other people that you know talking about how they know the market's going to go down tomorrow, that this is the time to buy, or this is the time to whatever, and you're going to recognize the mistake in the way that they're thinking it, that's going to make you feel really good about what you're doing. Probably the last big question for me or topic is children. Can you give just a 30 second to one minute overview of the Alliance for Decision Education, what you've built? I have a bit of an inside view there. It's pretty unbelievable what the vision and budding execution is there. And maybe wrap us up with some parenting tips on basically introduction to the Alliance for Decision Education and levels of how we might engage our kids to the extent that we're actually speaking to anybody in our families right now. Let me address the first part first. So when you look at what's being taught in K through 12 today, there's two things that are really missing. One is any education on decision-making. How would you actually go about making a decision? Did any of you in K through 12 take a class in decision-making? Usually you're taking it somewhere in college, if at that. But if you think about it, what's the most important thing that we want our citizens to be able to do is make decisions. So civics, financial literacy, decision-making, like these things have all sort of dropped from the curriculum. But what's interesting is the other thing that's really dropped from the curriculum is probability. Yeah. So when you look at the curriculum for most K through 12 in 1980, starting in kindergarten, you were learning probability. Mm-hmm. And now the first point at which probability is introduced in the math curriculum in the United States is in eighth grade. That's the first time you start to see it. So if we don't teach people to think probabilistically, there's all sorts of really bad things that come out of that. And let me just go back to coronavirus for a second. All the people who I know who are really smart, who are probabilists, who this is what they do. They're thinking about statistics and probability, particularly if they're traders. We're starting to make sure they had enough food in February, some in January. They self-isolated earlier than everybody else did. And the reason is that what they understood was that just because they say there's only one case in America that's confirmed does not mean that there's only one case in America because they understood statistically what it means to detect a case. They understood that that's limited by the number of tests that you have. They understood what the implications of one case were for something that doubles every three days, so on and so forth. So they're thinking probabilistically about what's the range of possible outcomes. They understand that as the risk of ruin becomes greater, that you should be doing things that are more extreme earlier with less certainty to protect yourself against that risk of ruin, so on and so forth. But that all comes out of understanding probabilities in the first place, understanding what 30% means, Mm -hmm. for example, which most people don't. If I go and play tennis, what's the probability that one of the three people is going to have it? And that's how you start thinking pretty early. And we just don't teach people to think this way. So what the Alliance for Decision Education is doing is saying this is an emergency situation in our country, that people aren't taught to how do you make a decision? What is a good decision process? How do you think probabilistically? And that we're trying to build that field in order to create decision education as something that every K through 12 student is getting in the same way that If you think about something like social and emotional learning, 10 years ago, nobody had ever heard of that. 
And now it's in every single school. I want to interrupt to make sure we're clear. It's an emergency in the general sense. The The group wasn't founded within the last month or two. It's been around for a no. few years. Oh, no, we were founded in 2014. Yeah, thanks for that clarification. We think it's an emergency just in general for society, but also for democracy. You have to create good decision makers in order to have a functioning society and a functioning democracy. The way that we think about it is better decisions lead to better lives and a better society, that those things are all really connected to each other. So you can look at the decisions of the individuals in a society, and that tells you how healthy the society is. And we're just not skilling up kids in the kinds of things that would help you be a better decision maker. So that's really what we're trying to do there. By way of conclusion, just maybe give us a nugget, maybe even a positive one of things that we can be talking with our kids about. What might we use this opportunity for at home to teach them? I think the kids who are really young, I think it's a little bit of a choice how much you want to sort of let them in on what's happening in the world. Mm -hmm. It's a little scary. I think that you can be taking the time to teach them better things than they're probably learning at school. So I would take the opportunity to do that. <laughs> so you can start to teach them things. I would be doing things like really teaching them about like finance and probabilities and things like that, which you can do with six-year-olds, by the way. If you play Go Fish, you can teach them about probabilities. And you can teach them game theory and strategy through like really simple games like that. And I think that that's probably what I would be doing with my younger kids. With my teenagers, I'm actually just really open about what's happening in the world. And I talk through with them how I think about the problem. So for example, my kids know how you could do a back of the envelope calculation for figuring out how many actual cases there are of COVID by looking at the number of deaths in the last 24 hours. And we talk about that and we talk about sort of how you would model that and thinking about what the upper bound and lower bound would be depending on what the parameters are. So mm -hmm. what I find with my kids is that talking very frankly about it with them actually calms them down and reduces their anxiety. So I think that we have a tendency, it's true with a six-year-old, like shield them, that's fine. But once you get into someone who's probably fifth or sixth grade or higher, they're gonna be hearing all this stuff out in the world. And they're gonna be hearing a lot of stuff that isn't true. So first is, I would take this opportunity to really teach them to question the stuff that they're hearing, yeah. and to think about how would I actually verify information? This is something we do at the Alliance. And the second thing is I would actually just be really, and I am being really transparent with my children about what the numbers mean. What's the course? Why are we socially isolating? What does it mean to bend the curve? They now understand something about logs, which they wouldn't have otherwise understood. And so I think that having those conversations where you're being much more transparent about it and using it as a way to actually communicate how you might model the world and how you might bet information actually helps them to have less anxiety because the transparency is, I believe, and this is just me, I believe yeah. that's better for them. Okay, great. So Annie, if people want to be in touch and to follow your fantastic insights on all of this. Oh, that's really sweet. Thank you. So first of all, definitely go pre-order my book, <laughs> How to Decide, <laughs> Simple Tools for Making Better Choices. This actually gets much more into like what a really good decision process looks like. Yeah. How would you actually execute on it? Brian's actually read the book. Thank you, Brian. You can follow me on Twitter at Annie Duke. If I have posted on Medium, which I have been recently, you can see what I'm saying about COVID there. That's where I'm talking a lot about it. All right, Annie, you're the best. Thank you for taking the time. And Can I just answer one question? So somebody said earlier in the chat, and I want to answer because it was such a nice question, Okay. which was just, how am I feeling right now? 
that just really touched me. So yeah. I just would like to answer that. And yeah. my answer is in some ways really good just because I'm just kind of doing my thing and my family is safe, which is really helpful. In other ways, incredibly frustrated at the decision-making around this particular crisis, particularly frustrated because I think there were a lot of people who sort of foresaw this in a way that wasn't acted on. And that's been very, very hard for me. And then just really heartbroken as you sort of try to contemplate the magnitude of what's happening in the world. It's like, there's some comfort in knowing that the people that are in my immediate family are safe and okay, but the world's kind of not really okay. And what I found something really interesting, which is that way back in February, I was actually thinking about the magnitude of what the loss of life might be. And I had the numbers all in my head. I'm not surprised at all by the numbers. As I was thinking about the range, I think that I told somebody I was between 40,000 and 2 million in the US. What's happening was firmly in my range. I understood what the magnitude could be. But the thing that's true is no matter how much you can anticipate it, when you start to see it and you start to see the numbers rise and you start to think about like today, I think one person every two minutes died. I'm kind of not okay. So, I mean, I appreciate the question because I'm really just kind of not okay. Yeah. Well, I think we're all, we're all struggling in different ways to process what this all means. Thank you, Annie, for just really inspired thoughts. And you didn't use the word, but pointing out that in a time like this, empathy is almost everything. And oddly enough, this is going to bring us together. It's very heartwarming to see so many friends hanging out. So I love all you guys. Thank you, Annie. And I will be talking to all of you very soon. So have a great rest of your night and take care. Bye, everybody. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you'd like what you heard, please tell a friend and maybe even write a review on iTunes. You'll help others discover the show. And I thank you for it. Have a good one and see you next time. Thank you.